Right now, the two main stories trending about President Donald Trump are about porn star Stormy Daniels and, quote, shithole. Just make sure not to Google them at the same time. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth, and this is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. Can you believe Trump nuked Steve Bannon on Twitter eight days ago? Yeah, you need it. Welcome back to the political pregame in 2018. Today, Tiana and I are drinking one of my favorite beers entitled Come Hell or High Watermelon, which I think the title speaks to the theme of the year in 2018. So much has happened since our last episode before the holidays, but what we'll be covering today is the quote, shithole that encompasses immigration policy thus far in 2018. Trump as a newly very stable genius, and looking past 2018, we'll even be talking about 2020 and potential presidential runs. So let's get right into it. Tiana, Explain this shithole madness that's going on in the media right now. Okay, so everything seemed relatively productive until yesterday afternoon when this Washington Post report dropped that Trump referred to African nations, Haiti and El Salvador, as shithole countries. The quote specifically in this Washington Post report is, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here? And then asked, why do we need more Haitians in this bipartisan discussion to discuss immigration reform? Prior to this report coming out, it seemed like Republicans were actually making, or it seemed like everyone was making a lot of progress. Because it looked like they were going to codify DACA into congressional law. And then in exchange, increase um, increase funding for the wall, increase funding for border security, institute more E-Verify, and potentially even address chain migration, which if you're at all, an immigration hawk should really be your main priority, far more than the wall. Yeah, so, and even, in, sorry to cut you off, but even Trump of all people was even talking about, even on Twitter, reaching across the aisle and kind of taking this hard hit from maybe his classic Republican constituents to, to work yeah. on this immigration reform issue. I mean, he had even pulled a jeb, like, the day before this report came out and said that it should be a bill of love. And, I mean, he destroyed Jeb Bush over the campaign for saying that immigrating here is an act of love. Um, so... This sort of nuked the whole conversation about immigration because this just completely took over. So I know that Rich Lowry at National Review said that he heard that Trump said shit house, not shit hole. I think the semantics aren't that different. Um, there were a couple of clarifying reports. Trump says that he didn't say this. Um, the Washington Post only cites several people briefed on the meeting. But then I think... Uh, Senator Durbin came out today and said yes, said that Trump was using this pretty vulgar language in order to describe countries that he doesn't like. So there are two issues here. One is the rhetoric and two is the insinuation. So the rhetoric problem is obviously bad, but at this point in the game, I don't think anyone is that shocked uh, considering the sort of tone that Trump has used in the past to describe women, to describe immigrants, to describe a bunch of things that he doesn't like, insinuating that Judge Curiel during the campaign was un- was incapable of fairly judging him because his parents were born in Mexico. So what I think is more important and what the media is not really focusing on is the insinuation of a shithole country. So I think it's we'd be hard-pressed to say that Cuba or North Korea do not have awful governments, that they are not oppressive countries. That does not affect 
the people there. That is, that is not speaking to the quality of character of the people from those countries. And it's the one thing that people really liked about Trump during the campaign, the thing that made him resonate with his base, outside of the racial resentment wing of the alt-right, average Americans do see what's happening happening in Europe where people from these countries with more or less Sharia law would be moving to Europe, and then you hear about gang rapes in Sweden and whatnot. It's one conversation to say, I'm concerned about the values of people coming from a specific place. But to insinuate that that nations such as Haiti, which have incredible success rates of people coming to this country and incredible will and endurance, to say that those people are bad because their country has suffered... And, I mean, last year he previous there was a report that he said that all Haitians have AIDS, which is not even statistically accurate. So I, I think it's important to differentiate between is it possible to say that these countries are ba- uh, that these countries have bad governments or problematic living conditions? And what does that say about the people? I think the reason why everyone is so aggrieved right now is because the insinuation is that the people are bad because of their countries. Okay, so here's why I disagree with that. I think that you are speaking about this in a far more eloquent manner than the president, of course. Um, However, that isn't how the president phrased his argument. Um, It may be what he intended, but it did not come off that way. And, And as we kind of were discussing prior to us recording this podcast, facts are facts. The facts of the matter are, well, the alleged facts that have been corroborated by, you know, Senator Jeff Flake, although Trump is trying to paint this as as a partisan Democratic attack with these false allegations of what he said in this meeting. Meanwhile, Senator Jeff Flake has even come out and corroborated this story with CNN. Um, I think it is equally as bad for him to call a country a shithole country because of what it insinuates towards the people that are from that country. Just as you just said about insinuation and how the media might be spinning this to insinuate that he's talking about the immigrants, which, no, he's not, but that is the insinuation that is made from that simple blatant comment right there, and and that's something that I take issue with, and I think is the reason why this has become such a big news article, or sorry, a news story, because people have been taking issue with this, because that's the insinuation that is just made from the average person hearing these things. Yeah, and I, I think you and I probably agree more than disagree about whether or not the comments were wrong, but I just don't... Th- I think that it's important to differentiate because the easy argument to make is I last night, um, Rich Lowry and Joan Walsh were on MSNBC, and he asked Joan Walsh, where would you rather live, Haiti or Norway? Because Trump said that he'd rather have more immigrants from Norway. And she said, I don't know. Let's be real. Where would you rather live, Norway or Haiti? Yes, but that's not the issue at stake. We know these countries. Obviously, you know, the influx of immigrants from these exact places speaks to the governments and the impressive living conditions that are there. But does a president who is engaging in politics and engaging in talks and trade with countries all over the world and, and, and some of these countries in which the U.S. gets immigrants from... Is it appropriate for him to be calling them shithole countries and blatantly disrespecting them like that? Absolutely not. And it also disrespects the people who come from those places. No, I mean, well, it definitely also speaks to the fact that Trump does not understand that in a bi- in a meeting with Democrats, nothing is off the record. Like, there will be leaks. They will, oh, even, even if the senators in totally good faith didn't want to shame the White House by sharing what Trump had said, 
even if they tell a staffer, of course, a staffer is going to go to their connection at the Washington Post and say if, if Trump uses that word to refer to all of Africa. And also, you know, so Trump came out of the gate in 2016, or technically it was 2015, saying that he wanted to build a wall because Mexico was sending their rapists and their murderers. Africa's sending us the cream of the crop that they have. So the foreign-born adults as a whole... 26.8% of them have college degrees. African immigrants, so those of those who are age 25 and older, 41.7% of them have a bachelor's degree or more. Our native rate is over 10% lower than that. So Africa, so African immigrants who come here do better than the native-born population if you if you're looking at uh, university statistics. So just this, and obviously, if you're coming from a poor country, if you're coming from a country with a very incompetent government, in order to make it here, you must have plenty of abilities. So yeah, I think that there's an intelligent conversation to be had about, do we want a diversity visa lottery system that favors some countries over others? Like, that's one conversation you can have about policy. But this idea that, quote, shithole countries send over bad people is just wrong this is just not true i mean if you look at the statistics haitian immigrants speak english at much higher rates than chinese immigrants and we send over so many chinese immigrants and especially we see it going to university how many chinese students are able to get student visas coming here and how much more difficult that would be for a haitian student when haitians do a far better job assimilating into um the Anglosphere. Well, this is why I also completely do not understand where Trump is coming from with his arguments about immigration being this total boogeyman and an and awful thing for America when, with all those statistics that you just listed, Tiana, you see the complete opposite. And he talks about this merit-based system of immigration needing to come into place. Doesn't anyone realize how expensive it is to immigrate to another country? The immigrants that are coming here are people with resources, people who are smart enough to get themselves here, who have degrees, who are able to be able to speak English to a certain level of proficiency to be able to navigate their way through this system and obtaining um, immigrant status. And I think that also ties into this recent repeal this past week on the TPS program um, on immigrants that... Trump has essentially repealed for 200,000 people from El Salvador um, who have been allowed to live in the United States for more than a decade, essentially must leave the country they're giving them until September of 2019 to get all of their affairs in order. Uh, I personally have some major qualms with this as policy um, and, and morally as well. As you know, and you might know if you're listening to this podcast, I am I'm a pretty like hardline economic libertarian in the sense that if you're here, and if you're not a criminal, and if you're not on the government dollar, if you're sustaining yourself, you are an economic benefit to us. If you have a job, and if you're taking care of yourself, you're contributing, and you're paying taxes, you're contributing to our economy. So, no, the El Salvadorian people do not have a right to be here, but to suspend the policy so quickly, to me, just seems like it's a lot of, I know that Trump was getting flack from his base for, you know, the bill of love, and sometimes it just feels like, He's trying to give the base a little bit and then trying to give the Jeff Flakes and Lindsey Grahams of the Republican Party a little bit. He's trying to sort of... I would disagree with that, and I, from my opinion, and, and knowing what the legislation has been and the precedent set over the last 10 years, even more since this has been enacted since the Bush administration, and I believe 
1990 when this program was first enacted. I believe that these immigrants totally actually do have a right to be here. Um, these are people that have fled their countries for a multitude of reasons and have been severely oppressed. And um, similar to the DACA and the, the, the Dreamer argument are ones who have been here for a period of time where they have settled down, they've had children here, and, and not only for themselves, but for their families that they have built while being in the United States, this is the only place those people know. Uh, the children of these immigrants who have had to be here, even you know, for some people since 1990, since this program was initiated, for and then for El Salvadorians for the last kind of decade, they might not even speak their native language or, or know anyone from their actual home country that they originated from, these children. And so this comes into the same not only moral argument that the DACA, the repeal on DACA kind of brings about, but also the policy argument that, that DACA brings about. By essentially taking away this status from 200,000 El Salvadorians and giving them no other options, this is only exacerbating the illegal immigration, quote, problem and epidemic, if according to Trump, that there is in the United States of America. Um, when you repeal legislation and you do not provide legislation or enact legislation that helps remedy what you are about to do, that creates a major issue. So the repeal on this without a pathway towards success, without a pathway for these immigrants to obtain citizenship or at least have an incentive to go home, what do you think is going to happen? These 200,000 well, people who had social security numbers, who were getting paid properly by employers on the payroll could be tracked by the government. Not only that, paying income taxes, which is extremely important at this time when we have just uh, experienced major tax reform and tax cuts, you need taxpayers paying taxes, are now going to be still staying in the U.S. because this is where they are and maybe they don't even have the means to get home, but yet now they're not trackable by the government and not even paying taxes. They're just going to be getting paid under the table and only this is only feeding more illegal immigrants in the country because you're effectively creating 200,000 plus illegal immigrants well, that were so, once okay. legal here. So this, so the big difference to me between the El Salvador case and the DACA case are, are purely strategic. It makes sense for Trump to threaten to take away DACA because he's trying to use it as a bargaining chip because he thinks, I'll, I'll, I will sign DACA into law if you give me the wall, if you give me E-Verify. E Which are I extremely I, lofty goals. I, I, well, but I don't, I don't think that's bad strategy. With regards to the El Salvador thing, I am enough of a neocon to say that, say that, yeah, there's no reason for us to assist citizens from governments that are actively being hostile to us right now if we're trying to, like, make a statement, but I don't know why we'd be trying to aggravate El Salvador. When El I mean, Jeff Sessions has been working with El Salvador to crack down on, like, um, gang violence through MS-13, and El Salvador has been highly cooperative. So I just don't understand. If you're choosing a country to aggravate in a way, I don't get why you'd make it El Salvador. To, yeah. me, that, to me, that's just bad strategy. I think that, like, the whole DACA thing's been handled with a lot more strategy than El Salvador. Oh, 100%. For me, this policy decision that has come out in the news this past week has been completely out of left field. And, uh, you know, I understand the DACA argument that you're providing, Tiana, although, you know, I strongly disagree with the repeal of DACA and obviously the use of it as a bargaining ship, but I do understand the strategic imperative there. Yeah. But this is completely out of left field. And honestly, just seeming more as hateful towards immigrants than anything strategic And whatsoever. coupled with the shithole comment, you know, is not, is not a great call. Um, it's... So, this is... It's 
Rhetoric matters. Yes, I, as a conservative, am really happy that we got a good tax reform bill. I've been really happy with Justice Gorsuch. But Charlottesville will wind up in history books. This winds up in history books, and this affects American morale. Rhetoric matters when it's coming from the leader of the free world. So I think, like, for instance, in a place like Florida, where you have tons of, like, Cuban and Haitian immigrants, people who came from countries that I don't believe that the country's infrastructures are good, but the people who come to America are the best, the brightest, work, want freedom the most, embody American values. Now, if we want to have the conversation about countries like China, like Russia, where not only are the governments hostile towards ours, but also the values are incredibly collectivist, incredibly authoritarian, I am far more okay with like an influx of Mexican immigrants than I am of Russian and Chinese. And I say that as someone whose paternal grandfather did immigrate to this country from China to escape the cultural revolution. And I'm not saying no immigration from Russia and China, but I do think that it's important to have a values test. I think that it's it's one thing to say no one from these countries are allowed. It's another thing to say if you're coming from a country that enshrines collectivism as a part of your social fabric, when you come here, I think it's important that you believe in liberty and individualism as some of your as some of society's like core values, you know? So I I I just think, like, the immigration, the thing that really makes me upset about this shithole story is it represents the dumbest kind of immigration conversation you can have. Poor countries are bad, rich countries are good. And, I mean, the Daily Stormer, the prominent neo-Nazi website, they came out and said that, said that the fact that Trump said that he wanted immigrants from Norway, it indicates that Trump is more or less on the same page as neo-nazis with regards to racial immigration so i mean rhetoric matters he is empowered yeah when he says stuff like this he is even if he just meant the countries and not the people rhetoric matters because it does reinforce the beliefs of these hateful minority groups not only does rhetoric matter but also policy matters and and imposing policy that makes sense Mm -hmm. matters take away the shithole rhetoric take away like Anyone coming from these quote-unquote shithole countries, that kind of whole thing, we don't need them. And just look at the policy alone and how, I mean, we've already talked about it, but it just, it makes absolutely no sense. In your perfect world, what would you have Congress and the president do? What do you see as a realistic bargain in the end? Okay, well, I mean, this is going to sound like the classic Democratic campaign platform, but a realistic pathway to citizenship. Like, I, I'm not against taking away this TPS status from these people so long as they're able to get status by other means, by by showing that you've been here and you've been working. I don't care what job. You don't need to go to college or university or a two-year program or a degree, but show that you've been working and contributing to the economy and and also show that you have a family here and show how America means to you and provide people a pathway to to citizenship that way. Not, we're going to take away your status just because of where you came from, regardless of you being an amazing contributor to, to the economy here, being an upstanding citizen, doing everything that's been asked of you. But just because of where you came from, despite all these things you've done to prove your merit and, and to take even Trump's term, merit-based immigration system, all these things to prove your merit, no, just we're going to send you away by September 2019. No way for you to get status. Same thing for DACA too, which I mean, we need to have a decision on by March. So in a perfect world, a policy needs to be enacted where 
people who have had status previously in the U.S. can somehow be able to get status easily. And, and it's also about providing a meaningful way to do so. We're not making this about a, a wealth divide. You know, for, for a lot of people to be able to even get a green card in the United States, you need to have a pretty darn good immigration lawyer and a lot of money to be able to pay for that and also five years to spare for that to go through. Uh, I've had plenty of friends that have tried to get green cards in the United States and that can't be the case either. You need to have something where people don't need to have the access to a lawyer and, and, and the funds to pay for that. They just need to be able to somehow show that they deserve to be here. Yeah, so I think Trump is correct to use DACA as a bargaining chip. But that being said, I think that the end result, he should use these negotiations to take care of the people who are already here. So if you were brought here through no fault of your own, no, I do not think you have a right to be here. I do think it is a privilege. But I think that as long as you have been participating in the economy, going to school, in our military, and if you're already here, you should be able to stay here. Take care of the people who are here and then fix the border. And I think I, all and, those and, things and that, that you just said is what gives those people the right to be here, though. Yeah, okay, I'm not... But, I, I mean, I'm probably a little bit more stringent with my definition of right versus privilege. Mm-hmm. But 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 my point being is that I think at the end of the day, if, you, if you're here through no fault of your own and if you're contributing to American society, you should be allowed to stay here because, again, I'm an economic libertarian. That being said, we do have border problems. And that... I mean, I'm not a fan of the wall, mainly because the wall won't really do anything. What we just need, we need, we need better border control. A wall doesn't do anything. A wall will be very expensive. It'll be there for Trump to like appease his base, and it won't do that much. I am far more concerned about chain migration and that being reformed. And that's something that it looked like Republicans were making some way on until you know the whole shithole comment and um, e-verify as well to make sure that people can't employ illegal immigrants in the future. So I, so I think that the bargain will be good, but if Trump just lets, if Trump makes no progress, lets DACA, inspire, uh, lets DACA expire, coupled with these comments, it's not going to look very good for him. He needs a win on immigration. He's already, I mean, he's, he's managed at this point to offend everyone. He's, he's offended everyone from Ann Coulter, who is the, who, she wrote a book called In Trump We Trust. Ann Coulter's essentially a single issue voter when it comes to immigration. So she's, so Trump has pissed off that wing of his base. He's offended the rest of us who kind of don't want to hear about all of Africa being referred to as a shithole. And now he's making it really easy for the Democrats just to slap the racist label around. You know, so he just, this was not, if he, if he, if he genuinely didn't, if he genuinely did not say it, he should push back on it because this does not help the Republicans negotiate, especially good Republicans like Lindsey Graham, like Jeff Flake, and especially someone like Margaret Rubio, who's been trying to push for immigration reform within the Republican Party for years. 100%. And and I agree with you saying that Trump does need to win on immigration, and, and decisions need to be made, I think, uh, to be honest with you, and especially with uh, the reactions from Republicans and other people, uh, this decision about El Salvador has really alienated him on, on the immigration issue, as well as if a decision is not made about DACA, and, and as we kind of touched on, some policy is not made to remedy that, that is also, even from Trump's own eyes, it has to be a loss on immigration because now you're contributing to what? It's 800,000 plus dreamers that yeah. are at risk of losing their status and 200,000 plus El Salvadorians that are at risk of losing their status. So if all of those people lose their status and have no way to regain status, essentially you have now exacerbated, Trump, your own issue that you came into office uh, fighting about by 
now having 1 million more people with illegal immigration status in the United States. And I know we've talked about this issue a bunch and kind of how it doesn't make a lot of logical sense, which I think ties into our next kind of topic about Trump being his quote-unquote very stable genius that he has uh, called himself oh, this week. God, Yeah, so this is a little further back, um, if you can recall, from anything prior to 48 hours ago. So Michael Wolff drops this book, The Fire and the Fury, the closest compare. I mean, Michael Wolff is more of a tabloid journalist than an actual journalist. He relies primarily on unnamed sources. Um, at some point, I think he's been... It's weird because the mainstream media has elevated this book, even though anchors like Jake Tapper have been pointing out there are three errors on one page. And uh, Meghan McCain did a cracking job, like really grilling Wolf on The View about the fact that there have already been so many contradictions. Maggie Haberman came out and said that she was misquoted. Um, staffers have come out and like vehemently denied stuff that have stuff that's been said in there but uh but point being this book has the reason why it's been so notorious is for two reasons one because of what was said and two trump's reaction so in it wolf basically relies on steve bannon as a source um he relies on steve bannon for like the the meat of the story and steve bannon says a bunch of salacious things things that given to the steve bannon i am the kingmaker myth and Trump fired back, and he gave out two, two basically series of statements. One was a written statement excoriating Steve Bannon. It was excellent. He was basically saying, Steve Bannon is someone who rides on the coattails of others. He rode on the coattails of Andrew Breitbart. He rode on the coattails of Sarah Palin, and now he was just riding on the coattails of Trump. It was a great statement. It was probably the best statement of Trump's presidency. Then there was Trump's response to the book. And that was bad. It was a series of tweets from about a week ago, and it... Did not lend itself to the idea that Trump's very mentally stable. So then he referred to himself as a very stable genius. Yeah, let me just read this tweet for everyone in case people have forgotten because it is quite lengthy and quite... And the news cycle at this point is just like, it's like being hit by a train. It's fast and it's painful. Yes. So the tweet goes like this, dot, dot, dot. Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being like really smart. Crooked Hillary Clinton also played these cards very hard and, as everyone knows, went down in flames. I went from very successful businessman to top TV star to president of the United States, in brackets, on my first try. I think that would qualify as not smart, but genius, and a very stable genius at that. So. Okay, if he can't have anyone, just as a side note, if he can't have anyone, like, moderate his Frickin phone. Can he please have someone teach him how to thread tweets? <laughs> Nothing is worse than needing to click on a new tweet. I want to just be able to scroll down. It's annoying. Okay, all right. Bye so, <laughs> couple issues with this tweet. Um, first of all, why are you bringing, quote, crooked Hillary Clinton into this? She did not write this book. You won the election um, over a year ago now, and she actually had nothing to say about this. So, why she's being brought into this again, I don't know, plays it's to kind because, of the it's, it's insecurity because, complex, potentially. Um, also, Trump needs a villain in his life. Yes. Trump doesn't work Trump alone. Trump works when he's fighting against someone. And uh, describing yourself as, like, really smart, I don't know, that to me sounds a little contradictory. And then uh, what I found kind of most hilarious about all of this is there was, you know, as 
as media does and social media especially, there was all these memes on Twitter and Instagram and all the likes of that um, talking about, oh, remember that time Albert Einstein called himself like a really smart, stable genius and, and Thomas Edison and everyone else who was actually extremely smart. Um, when I originally first saw this, to be honest, I thought it was a headline from an, an article from The Onion and found out that it was otherwise, which is yeah. just speaks to the times that we're rolling into in 2018 here, folks. No, I mean, before we did the podcast, Avery and I were texting about podcast names, and I sent her, we, this will not wind up being the name, but I thought it was funny, I said, shit holy moly, and she said, I don't get it, and I said, wait, do you not know about shithole? And I said, please Google Trump shithole right now. I mean, it just goes to show how fast these stories happen. If you, like, haven't checked Twitter in the last 12 hours, you're already a new cycle and a half behind. Um... Well, speaking of which, too, we have the whole Stormy Daniels debate to go through. So, okay, so everyone's been talking right now about Trump's, like, fitness for office. It's sort of this, like, liberal pipe dream that Trump's going to be impeached. I don't think that is impossible for Trump to be impeached. I think that given that Mueller's find nothing in his investigation about Russian collusion that ties Trump to it himself, I would say impeachment is a very slim chance. Invoking the 25th Amendment is a pipe dream. Is Trump a sort of bloviating self-aggrandizer who has been never taught the word no and is extremely privileged and fires off incredibly stupid tweets that threaten the stability of this nation? Yes. Can you invoke the 25th Amendment for being what is more or less like a spoiled man-child? No. Well, and, also, and especially when he has the mandate of the people. The people voted him, him in already knowing all of this. Well, also too, I'd like to add, even if you, if, even if there was was a clause in terms of, uh, you know, whatever fitness or stability that if you're a, a man child, you cannot no longer fit, you're no longer fit for office. Even if that was the case, and that was reasonable grounds to impeach someone, I'd like to also add, you need a two thirds majority in which, with the House and Senate having a Republican majority and and seeing this kind of blind support from a lot of Republicans, uh, despite everything egregious that Trump has said throughout his campaign and, and now throughout his tenure in office, um, that is just extremely improbable well, on, on all accounts. It's, it's also difficult because... Maybe unfortunate, yes, but it's definitely improbable. Yeah. Well, and as far as the Republicans go, it's very difficult for even someone like Bob Corker, who publicly spars with Trump, even though he's also a Republican... Yes, Trump says terrible things, and I'm not saying that those things don't matter. I mentioned earlier the fact that this, like incredibly anti-Semitic, racist. I mean, I got into a Twitter war, not war, spat with Paul Nalen, the, like, alt writer who keeps on trying to primary Paul Ryan, even though Paul Ryan always blows him out of the water. And he kept on saying, I'm not, like, all of his followers kept on saying, Paul is an anti-Semitic, he's counter-Semitic. And yes, when Trump says stuff, he does empower empower these anti-counter-Semites. But I think for even someone like Corker or someone like Flake, the fact that Nikki Haley is basically setting our... Israel policy, you know, and you do have good people like H.R. McMaster, you do have great people like General Mattis, so you still have competent people around him, but when he picks up the phone, I mean, he's not doing himself any favors, you know? I mean, it's... Is he picking up the phone to call people, which he should be? No, he's picking up the phone to tweet. I, I don't know any president who uses Twitter, who has used in the past Twitter as a communication method between the world leaders. Pick up your private line in the Oval Office, yes, please. Yes, yes. 
Um, no, so so now I'm going to talk about Trump's fitness for office. It's because it looks like honestly, I mean, we'll talk probably. I'm assuming something will happen with Russia that we'll discuss next week. But right now, it looks like Russia investigation, nothing that damning with regards to Trump. Lots of bad stuff with Paul Manafort and whatnot, and Mike Flynn. But Trump seems like he's fine. So now I think like the left wing talking point is talking about this fitness for office. And the news story that came out today was porn star, star Stormy Daniels. The Wall Street Journal says received $130,000 from the Trump camp in 2006 as essentially hush money for a sexual encounter that she had with Donald Trump. And the Wall Street Journal explicates that contrary to some of the allegations levied against Trump, this one, there's no insinuation of improper con- contact on Trump's part or any sort of like forced assault. So she came out, she denies this. She says that if it did happen, she would have written about it in her book. Um, but it looks like there are Daily Beast reports that say it did happen. They verified in other, like they verified with other porn stars. To me, does this matter? I don't know, Avery, you tell me. Does this matter? This, I mean, are we, do we, as a people at this point, really care about if Trump allegedly cheated on Melania? I think all of us can assume that it, that it is an extremely likely possibility that this has happened considered he's, you know, talked about grabbing women by the you-know-what and everything else of the like and, and bragged about having sex with women on, on many talk shows prior to running for, for president. And and so, in my opinion, this story does not matter at all. It is just basic fluff. And even if it is true, personally, I don't really care because... We all know the kind of man this guy is. Yeah. We all know that even if this story isn't true, I bet you there's someone else that he has paid off in terms of some sort of sexual encounter. I mean, it's just like, it's too probable to have not happened. And at this point, no one should be surprised, including the media. Well, okay. It's like... Although unfortunate, I will say, but you know. You know, there was so much, like, tee-heeing last night about, like, Trump said shithole. Like, no, the problem isn't, like, the word. The problem is the insinuation. Same thing kind of, like, with this. There's so much, oh, my God, can you believe a sitting president of the United States cheated on his wife? Yeah, JFK. Listen to any of the LBJ tapes or any of the Nixon tapes. They all used vulgar language. JFK notoriously cheated on his wife. And there are even allegations of sexual assault against him. Does that make it right? No. We should want to elect good men and women to represent the free world, but this is not the thing. I mean, I think America elected this guy knowing this. Seventh graders in the 90s were were being taught that oral sex was not sex and learning about fun uses of cigars. So I don't think that, I I, I think like the whole like moral preening that the media does whenever stories like this come out, it's like, all right, if it's consensual, if he paid someone off, like, A, this is not the worst thing, and you can condemn it, but then you better condemn Bill Clinton, and you better condemn JFK. Which I believe, okay, Bill Clinton was definitely condemned. Let's let's be real there. I I mean, I I think it's split. I think younger people are now condemning Bill Clinton more. I think that there is the old Clinton guard, and I think that that, in the end, Democrats are lucky that Hillary Clinton did not win, because otherwise you'd be saddled with the Clinton dynasty for longer. And I think that it has a moral character that is deficient. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's so crappy that now, I you know, with the presidency and, and the election and everything, that almost as an American public, we have been desensitized to in terms of these sexual stories yeah. uh, recently in the, in the past know. two years that 
this kind of doesn't even doesn't even doesn't even us. doesn't even phase me hearing these allegations about Trump, which is very sad to be able to say. But at the same time, I mean, what was it? Three weeks before the election, that Hollywood access Hollywood, act, tape, access yeah. Hollywood tape dropped, and 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 America. I mean, okay, yes, we know not the majority of America, but the right parts of America in terms of electoral college still voted this guy in. Yeah, n- fully knowing this stuff, every like it was on every news cycle. There's no way yeah. people hadn't heard about yeah. it. It it just. It lends itself to the desensitization that is that has taken place, and and as unfortunate as it is, it's just at this point you hear these stories about Trump, and it's like, oh yeah, okay, like of course, like I yeah. even without verified sources, I still freaking believe that. I mean, I'm not gonna believe this particular story until I read more about it, but I think it's one of those, even if the we need to have a higher bar, and I mean this sort of forays into I guess our next topic the. The bar of presidents for looking into 2020. Yeah, so I'm sure everyone has heard Oprah's speech by now at the Golden Globes. Um, she gave a pretty moving speech that uh, was was covered by almost any source of news uh, this past week at the Golden Globes about uh, kind of the the Me Too movement and and, and every, everything that has encompassed that in, in the past year um, with, uh, you know, the Time's Up slogan that was used and and whatnot. And and afterwards, it prompted this huge influx on, on social media and in the news of a potential 2020 presidential run for Oprah. Uh, there's many publications that have come out um, either saying how Oprah could actually have a great chance of winning and there's other people who are saying that not a snowball's chance in hell this would ever happen. Um, I don't know, Tiana, what's your take on this? So, the unfortunate truth about the reality of what is plausible, if Oprah ran, she would definitely win the Democratic primary. And depending on if Trump actually gets stuff done versus if he... If we get all Charlottesville and shithole and no wall and no economic reform and no welfare reform, Oprah would win. If we get less Charlottesville and less shithole and more laws and more justices, Trump wins, I think. See, so okay. I, so here, here's why I think Oprah could win. Oprah is almost the inverse of Trump, but she is as famous on a worldwide level. She has an incredible origin story. She is rags to riches, and she did it on her own. And whereas Trump will say, I wasn't that rich when I was a kid. A small $1 million loan from my father. He he grew up in Jamaica Estates, Queens. Always like, I'm from Queens. And it's like, you're from a Jamaica Estates. Um, That's like saying, like, you're, like, from Long Beach and being like, actually, it's Palos Verdes. So... So Oprah has this incredible story. She's a unifier. She has incredible name recognition. And if and if we get more Charlottesville and less good stuff from Trump, people are going to be tired. People are going to... I mean, Oprah... Oprah... Economists estimate that Oprah got Obama one million extra votes in the primary in, wow. in, in 2008. So, so I think that it's very plausible. Then the question is, is it good? No, I don't think it's good. Because we need to have a higher bar for, for presidents than they can win. Because, you know, because if you're just going to play like that, if you're going to do that, like, prisoner's dilemma, and each person just chooses the wealthiest person on either side, then we're just left with, I don't know, Kanye 2020. Yeah, well, so it's interesting that yourself as a conservative actually is uh, potentially more optimistic about the possibility of Oprah actually winning the presidency than I would be as a Democrat. Um, You know, I'm not so sure that she'd win the primary. There's 
There's a lot of other things that go into that. I mean, uh, amongst Democrats, Elizabeth Warren has become pretty popular. And so this is the thing. Okay, so I'm going to provide, not necessarily that I believe this or not, but I'm going to provide, I guess, a counter thought to this conventional thought about politicians and, and the type of people that can win presidential elections that has come about recently with, you know, Trump's electoral win in 2016. Has Trump, as you know, this classic political famous outsider, has he tainted the possibility of anyone else that's this that runs on the platform and, and the persona of being a political outsider and a famous person but with a career pivot into politics? Has he tainted the image of a political outsider to the extent that it makes it that no one else can really be taken seriously after a Trump presidency? And I think that will come with seeing the overall legacy that that Trump's presidency leaves um, in in four years' time. However, that is one thing that I do worry about. Uh, Do I think Oprah would be a good president or not? I can't comment on that, and no one else should be commenting on that right now because being a president takes far more than being a successful business person or a successful socialite or anything of that nature and and being successful at at having money and, and, and stage recognition. It takes being successful at enacting policy. And that's one of the main, I mean, I work um, on a political campaign right now and, and the main thing with getting people elected, there can be politicians that are extremely qualified in terms of, I know that they, once in office, could have great policy decisions, write great policy and, and, and do the right thing and, and things that could be really great for America. But mobilizing that candidate and 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 their campaign to the extent that they are they become recognizable and people want to get out and vote for them that's a totally other issue in its own and so when you have these popular candidates running these people who have fans like an Oprah Winfrey like a Donald Trump people tend to come out and vote for them because they have this great name recognition yet is the policy really there i think with Trump you see otherwise with Oprah too early to comment i ha- she hasn't written any policy. If she has great policy, oh my gosh, I will be behind her 100% if she has policy I agree with. But, you know, maybe it's the political science student well, in me that studies this that gets kind of annoyed. But politics and government takes more than just being yeah, famous. I mean, it, it speaks to two things, you know. So one is clearly the executive branch and the president's powers have been expanded far too much. The fact that we are this scared of Trump in office or the fact... And I'm, I'm saying we, like... I don't know how much I'm scared of Trump so much as it is. I think it's a stain on the moral character of this country. Um, but, like, the fact that we're talking about, oh, Congress should be more important than the executive. It's the reason why, in the Constitution, the article on Congress is far longer than the article on president. Yeah, checks and balances. So, so okay, so, so that's one point. And the second point is, I've seen a lot of sort of, like, people in the libertarian equity feminist wing of the right talking about we're in a moral panic with me too in this way that seems negative i think we are in a moral panic but i think in a good way i think we're finally in a moral panic of understanding we vote with our dollars when we go to a woody allen movie we are endorsing woody allen's behavior when you watch when we created trump we gave him the power trump didn't trump didn't make his money contrary to what he says he didn't make his money because he was this incredible entrepreneur, he made his money because he was an incredible brander. He knew how to brand himself well, and we turned him into a star. We let him go from being a very wealthy man with some nice buildings to being the most famous reality TV actor in the country. We created him. 
And I think that maybe, is this a time we finally wake up and we finally realize Oprah's great? I mean, she lets nut jobs like Jenny McCarthy, the anti-vaxxer, and Dr. Phil become also national superstars. She platformed them. But Oprah is obviously like a good She's a very charismatic person. She's an incredible entertainer. She is someone with obviously like a strong like moral character when you see where she came from. But at what point do we put our foot down and say, no, I would rather have someone who is boring and good than have someone who is exciting and dangerous when it comes to controlling the most sensitive parts of our government? Yeah, I would agree with that. I wouldn't, you know, who's to say that Oprah is c- controlling and dangerous? I think you see that maybe on the other side right now with the administration. Yeah. Um, I have... No doubts in in Oprah's Oprah's sorry her her moral character her her intelligence to get to get where she is she is obviously an extremely intelligent woman. It's a different I, skill I than have, being a statesman. I have tremendous tremendous respect for her. However, I, you know as you just said, it's it's a totally different skill than being a statesman. And the thing that makes me, I guess, a little nervous or a little scared with all these people, you, you know, you see even Mark Cuban hinting at a presidential run and all these things, is just because someone is amazing in one field and in one part of, of their life and, and for Oprah that is, you know, putting herself on this amazing platform that she has and, and making money and also giving back and being extremely philanthropic. But does that translate into your ability to conquer international relations disputes, to run the economy, to oversee an entire administration and be the leader of the free world? I think this is an honor that as the American public and and mainstream media that we are just too easily willing to hand away. And so if she can prove herself with policy or if, or if any of these outsider candidates that might come about in, uh, in the 2020 election can prove themselves with, with policy, then by all means, if you can get into politics and you're good at it as a career shift, great. Good for you. I will be happy to vote for you and back for you, but it's too early to tell. And I, I kind of just am weary about people jumping on all these big Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely think it's good that there was an immediate pushback to the whole Oprah 2020 thing. I mean, weirdly, Seth MacFarlane gave a great thing. But I, I think it's more just like, if Oprah was running against Kamala Harris, and I read a BuzzFeed report earlier today that 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 a lot of Democratic operatives were, were weary of there being another black woman challenging Kamala Harris, Oprah would wipe out Kamala Harris. Which... Should, you know? that, should that necessarily happen, given I mean, I mean okay, Mal Harris's ability to have policy and her experience in government? Uh, that's another thing, and that's something that may be unfortunate. I know you have a different opinion on yeah. her particular policies, but I'm just saying in general. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, just to go back to the Oprah speech for something that I think also relates to the Michael Wolff book and also relates to things that Trump says, even if they are not true. So Oprah emphasized in this speech, it's so important to speak your truth. All right. I, I, I appreciate and understand the underlying message of the speech. But my truth is that, I mean, it has to be my least favorite phrase in of, the, the, of Trump's America. Everyone talking about speaking my truth. There is not my truth. There is the truth. And Michael Wolff was on Katie Turr's show last week. And she was asking him about, like, you know, sort of like the questionable sourcing. And he said, if it rings true, then it is true. No, that is not how journalism works. It's not if it rings true, it is true. It's the facts are the facts. And think about this discussion right now. We are talking about shared facts. We're talking about shared articles. We're talking about shared news reports. And we have different opinions on them. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not dishonest. We both have our own opinions. But to just say that there is... But it's my truth that these things are happening. 
That's insane. That's, I mean. I'm sorry, that's BS. It's B, It's BS. And if you're experiencing reality different than other people, I mean, I had a friend who texted me about this because he saw me retweet something about the whole my truth, your truth thing. And he said, is postmodernism dead? Um, in politics and journalism, it should be. In politics and journalism, if you're experiencing facts differently than other people, that means you're mentally ill. Yeah, or it means at least you could be, I think. Um, <laughs> I think that, I mean, as Tina said, facts are facts, okay? So I think this has almost been, you know, with the influx of the lingo of alternative facts and, and all these other things. Essentially, this kind of speaks to a, a, a top-down approach from the Trump administration. Trump was kind of the first person in recent history that has allowed people to question the media on this broad of a level because he has been denying throughout his career, throughout his campaign trail, throughout his presidency, blatant facts that have happened. Even if you look to what potentially happened in this meeting when he called Wrong. these shithole countries, right? <laughs> if that, if that, those were facts and that happened, then he is now still blatantly denying those facts. Accept that, and you can have your different a different opinion about the situation, but there is not this my truth, your truth. And what is so absolutely frustrating about this is that I know reporters and journalists take their careers so seriously. I mean, um, Tiana, someone who is who's in journalism, takes everything so seriously. In any article that she writes, she fact-checks it and makes sure she has great sources. And so to blatantly deny people who, put, who have put in all this work to spread the truth, and, and don't get me wrong, I know media is biased, I know MSNBC might spin a story differently than Fox News, but the fact remains that they are talking, they should be talking about the same facts all on a parallel playing field. And this distrust is just so egregious and something that I think completely needs to stop. People need to stop denying facts, stop denying reality, and debate opinions instead. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that will heal the tensions in our country is our understanding that we can share facts and we can have different principles and we can try and reconcile those principles with each other, but we can't just deny what is happening. I mean, that's that's how that's denying what the polls told us and denying what was actually happening is how we wound up with Trump. Yeah. So I mean, he he, I mean, he really is just a symptom of this greater cultural malaise rather than I mean, he's not the cause. You know? And this denial of facts can also be translated over to the Me Too movement, too, and with women coming out and, yeah. and people just blatantly denying those allegations. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's probably a good note to wrap up on. In, in a less somber note, we are super excited to have our first guest ever next week. We'll be having Blair White on the show. And I am super excited about this because I've been a huge fan of Blair's for a while. So I'm really excited to uh, discuss identity politics galore with her. Yeah, and um, it'll be a great show, and, and we're happy to have you guys back in 2018. Uh, again, our Twitter handles, you can you can tweet at us any anything you even disagree with about our show. I mean, as always, Tiana and I are trying to represent a wider scale of the spectrum than potentially most podcasts or most news sources do. However, obviously, we can't cover everyone's opinions, so if you guys feel differently, let us know. Uh, Tiana's Twitter handle is at Tiana the First. Mine's at Avery Hogarth, and... Um, Tune in. We're hoping to get the podcast on iTunes soon, but for now, you can find us on SoundCloud next week.